Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Hemp Logic Radio, where we attempt to sift facts from opinions in this upside-down world of industrial hemp. Hey, hey, it's Corey with Hemp Logic with his beautiful co-host and executive better half, Beth Sharp. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> she, 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 we were just, we were just laughing the podcast we just did before. She's, I don't know this, this, uh, this co-host thing is, is I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. So yeah, she's my executive better half. She's very beautiful and I'm glad to have her as my co-host. Uh, just so everybody understands, this is a live show. I don't do any any editing, so bear with us if it seems a bit cut up or chopped up or um, kind of chaotic. That is just the way that it is. Um, and so today uh, we have is somebody we've been talking about our food chain now for going on to almost three weeks. And almost every time we talked about the food chain, it was, I wish I had somebody a lot smarter than me. And lo and behold, uh, Michelle Kleiger popped up in my LinkedIn page, and she is what I needed. She is uh, from Stratagerm Consulting, and she's an agriculture and business consulting firm that works in the food and agriculture sector. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited about this one because uh, it's just it's, I'm just not smart enough, and I'm, I think people are really wanting to, to know more about the economics of what is going on. Um, kind of well, give us a background. And on I what, kind you know, of how, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no. <laughs> um, sure, I'd love to give you a little bit of background about myself. I um, first of all, I was going to say that I love that people want to talk about agricultural economics and food policy right now. Obviously, I wish that it was under better conditions and it wasn't because there are shortages and all of these terrible stories in the news, but I always find this interesting. And the fact that somebody wants to talk about it that's not my husband, just giving me the benefit of the doubt, is kind of fun. So I'm really glad to be here today. Um, and put some of my experience to use. So I worked in D.C. for about 10 years in agricultural consulting and trade policy. I got a master's in agriculture econ from Purdue and an MBA from Indiana University. Uh, And about two years ago, my family moved to Massachusetts. I really wanted to stay in food and agriculture, so I started this consulting firm. Um, and that's how I got here today. Very nice. Very nice. So, you know, I don't, what's your, what's your take on all this? Uh, you know, when, 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 when I saw that the States were shutting down the restaurants, I knew that the food industry was going to take a massive hit and it's something that I brought up and it's, uh, it's gotten worse and worse. And I don't know if you saw yesterday, I guess they got one of the big, the big pig uh, producers are starting to just kill animals and dump them because there's no home. And that, I don't think people understand. And and I might be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a hole. There's, there's now a massive hole in our, in our food chain that is going to take a month to, to, to get back to normal. Yes, I I think that you have that correct. And if you look at over the last 20 years, I think the number is in the late 80s, we ate approximately 55% of our food at home and 45% out. And it's taken 20 to 30 years now to see that switch, that in February, Americans were eating 55% of their food away from home. And almost overnight that became a total switch to we are eating almost all of our food at home all of the time. And I think one of the things that a lot of people 
even in the industry didn't completely understand was that within each of the items that you're purchasing, there is a restaurant supply chain or a food service supply chain and an at-home supply chain. So you might eat, uh, and we eat differently in both of those places. So you might, um, and, and that is what we're seeing right now, that mismatch, right? Items that were cut for or produced for a restaurant or food service, it might be shredded lettuce, it might be bacon. We turns out we eat a lot more bacon away from the home than in the home. Uh, more onions, all of these products, we're, we eat in restaurants, and almost overnight we said, nope, no more restaurants. Now we need it in the grocery store. Uh, and so it, it doesn't work like the, that. It yeah, doesn't. It, does, the, it, it doesn't. It, and, and I think that's the disconnect, and uh, I don't know how closely you – but I get it. <laughs> I get into some brutal conversations on people on my LinkedIn where, where I have these urban farmers that just say, well, this is good news. You know, the urban farms, the small farmers can now feed the I, guys. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. I, I, you're, these are things that you can, we can implement the small farm, the, the urban farms, and you can start to take care of yourself and maybe a close knit group around you. But you're not. What about the other eight billion people? That uh, right. who's going to feed that them? That is something that for sure, and that is something that exactly. When we talk about local agriculture, when we talk about um, a lot of these movements, you know, I think that sustainability. I think strong ecosystems are critically important. But every time you take away some of the efficiency and cause food prices to go up, it might, you know, people in the United States, by and large, are still going to eat. But what a lot of people forget is that we export a ton of food to the rest of the world. And so that food might not be getting to other countries. And so the food decisions we make, whether it's how we set up our systems in restaurants versus at home, or production methods we use and output is going to affect how much food costs in the United States and around the world. It's, it's uh, you know, around the world, you said it, around the world. And we, the, the, we just did a podcast with a guy about meat and the, the origins of where your meat comes from. And I think he said there was 25 different countries from around the world where we import meat. Why can't we produce that here in the United States? And why are we, you know, it's so there's this huge, it's we're 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 growing produce and and products here in the United States and then exporting it and then flipping it around and turning it and and importing the same exact products. I can see importing bananas. Obviously, we can't grow, you know, I don't think I don't think we can grow bananas here in the states, but I'm just going to go ahead and say we can't. Um, you know, papayas, the, the things that come from the exotic, you know, the middle of the, the middle of the world's, uh, those hot climates. Um, we have to import those products, but why are we importing and exporting products that we are, we grow here in the United States, like wheat, rice, corn, um, and of course beef. These are, I just don't understand the economics of it. Um, why are we doing that? I guess I do understand the economics because it's cheaper, but uh, <laughs> it's always about the money, right? A lot of times, and a lot of times it's about the scale. But I would say some of the things that you mentioned in some of the commodities, you know, you say rice as a category, but there are a lot of striations between it, right? And so whether it's a long grain or a short grain, whether um, so that Ooh, might be we produce different grains um, and we export it for different reasons. So that might be one. Also counter seasonal. Uh, and so a lot of stuff that comes. So there's a couple places, right? If you are eating grapes in the United States right now, they are still coming from South America. So grapes are something that sometimes is a year we produce here. Other times we import. Um, on the beef side, a lot of beef moves back and forth between the United States and Canada at different phases of the animal's life um, and different processing. So that cattle or that meat might move back and forth, which does count in import and export data. 
and then an industry that I have spent a lot of time working in, the seed industry. Uh, Seeds will cross six borders before they're planted by a farmer. And so one of the things we're seeing right now is corn seed that is moving. Somebody had needed more corn uh, seed, and so they shipped it to South America. They grew it for a season in over our winter, and right now it is being air freighted back to the United States to get in the ground here to grow out. So there's a lot of specialty products and special specialty processes that happen within these large commodity um, categories that are hard to see in the trade data, but those are a couple of the examples that jump to mind right away. Wow. It's, it's a lot, very much more a, a very complex problem than even people that are in the industry uh, have a problem grabbing a, grasping a hold of. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm sure you've and one seen... of the professors I worked with, she points out that even a lot of the fish that's caught off of New England, might you might be shipping that fish to Asia to be processed, clean cut, especially if it's sushi, and then brought back. And so you'll see that movement in the data, too, um, in, in why things are coming in and out. So... I am personally very pro-trade, um, and so I think that it's kind of interesting to see why we do it and some of the places we do it. But I completely understand, especially in a category like beef where we're so excited to eat American beef, that you know there is some questions on why aren't we eating it if we grow it. And especially right now, why aren't we eating it if we have too many hogs or have too many chickens? So protecting our own well and then again so let's go let's circle back to the food chain and what we're seeing with the restaurants and i that is the the biggest topic of when i've posted things is you know the uh, the first of all the question is how can we help and then of course there really isn't a whole lot you can do as a consumer to the question is, is, well, where would you like me to put those 17 truckloads of onions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so I just can't pick up a 50-pound bag of onions? No, it doesn't work like that. Um, it's just a, it's a broken chain, and these farmers have no choice but to dump them. Um, whether it be regulations, I'll say this, regulations, let's talk about milk. So you can't dump, you you can't just, you know, put out a Facebook post or a, a Craigslist ad and say, I've got 10,000 gallons of milk, come and get it, because then you're going against regulations because it hasn't been pasteurized and blah, 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 blah. Uh, coming from a dairy, coming from a dairy farmer, uh, that rubs me the wrong way. I drank whole milk my whole life, so... Uh, but that's that's the, the, the that's the impression that people have is that well why are you dumping all this produce and meat and you know and onions and potatoes I saw just this morning they're starting to dump potatoes that's scary uh, right and it's I mean I think it's a lot of it's a lot of factors that. One of the things, I think we're going to see it in supply chains around the world that has nothing to do with agriculture, but since just-in-time production came into effect, we have very lean systems, and we see it a lot, and we see it in agriculture, and so that's what's happening. We have an extremely efficient system where, you know, people raise animals, people process animals, it is stored, it is trucked, it is processed, it is sent to these different uh, outlets for sale. And there's just not a ton of lacks, you know, of slack, sorry, in the system for the disruptions. And so like you said, we are seeing regulations, whether it's milk has to be pasteurized, whether it's eggs have to be labeled differently for restaurants and can't switch. In some places, restaurants aren't allowed to sell groceries and others there are. So, Some of it is regulation that, you know, in a normal time has worked and potentially does protect consumers. But right now, this isn't something anybody planned for. So you've got it on the regulation side. 
You've got it on, you know, everybody trying to either keep workers in or keep workers safe. So some of the vegetables that are being plowed under, there isn't labor to, to get it out of the field. On the slaughtering side, maybe it's, there isn't labor workers to run the processing plants, um, or maybe they can't run them at a profit, and so they are closing the processing plants. So, you know, you have economics, you have regulation, you have safety, and then you have, you know, real constraints. How much freezer space is there? I mean, you know, we've had a lot of meat in storage for months now in the United States, and so now when there's a stop and people aren't purchasing, that requires somewhere to put it until they're ready. And that's the part that scares me. Right now we're talking about this excess. And the excess is sending a signal to producers to produce less. It's also sending signals to other places to destroy or it's spoiling because it is a perishable product. But in a couple of weeks when when some of these surpluses work themselves out, are there going to be severe shortages? And I think that that is the next step in this cycle that, one, really concerns me, and, two, I don't think people are prepared for because food security in the United States is going to the grocery store and getting to pick what type of tomato sauce you want or what grade of beef you want, not is that product available at all? And if you <laughs> see that change, it's going to be a huge disruption to most people. Oh, you're, you hit the nail on the head, and that's something I've been talking about. It's Guys, it's not, oh, there's food in the grocery stores. Why are you making such a, you know, why are you being so dramatic? It's coming. It's something you cannot see. If you don't, yeah. if, you're not in this, if you're not in this environment, if you don't do this for a living, you can't see it until you go to the grocery store and all you have is one item. You want, you know, well, what about white onions? I want a white onion. Get, you get <laughs> yellow. You know, what do I want right. a red onion? You get yellow. <laughs> you get, no, for uh, sure. And you asked, or you started to ask earlier, what can consumers do? And one of the things to add to the regulation and the system is, there isn't packaging. If you want to sell ground beef it need, in a grocery store, it needs to be on one of those styrofoam trays, right? Um, and in a restaurant, they're going to buy, you know, a huge container. And so we need those trays. We need those egg cartons. So I, I don't know how much any of it helps. But, like, I noticed that when I went to the grocery store this week for the first time in three weeks, that in addition to the dozen or the 18 egg cartons, there were those flats of two dozen eggs. And I was like, well, I don't mind having a flat of two dozen eggs in my refrigerator. I get that it's not as convenient as, you know, the carton that we're used to. But, like, in my own way, I felt like I was helping take some of that product that we're not used to seeing in a different format and helping push it through because maybe there aren't enough egg crates to get everybody eggs. So I don't know if those little things help. But they are things that I've started to notice, and I'm like, maybe I can do my part. Another one is a friend in Winnipeg yesterday works with a restaurant com- distributor, and he was like, look, none of the restaurants can sell steaks, so I put together a group of guys that all want to buy fancy steaks for their, house, for their houses, and eventually it'll be warm enough to have a cookout, and we're, I'm going to pick up. $4,000 of steaks that the restaurants can't sell and my friends want. So I do think that there are creative ways to help. They're not going to, you know, one individual is not going to save the supply chain. Like you said before, this is going to take a few weeks to work itself out. But there are some interesting things that are happening. What? Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. Beth, you had a question? Uh, well, yeah, it kind of was already answered, but um, so I'm going to ask another question. Um, so you have you have this bra- this amazing expanse of knowledge as far as the food chain and how it's been broken down and uh, or it's breaking down. Do you, in in your opinion, see that it's going to get uh, worse in the next week or t- not week or two, but in the in the near future or 
do you see that it's going to eventually get better as, um, you know, everybody d realizes that it is breaking down and so that they need to somehow support the, the ag department or the dairy department um, and start purchasing more from the farmer themselves? I don't know. I, I personally guess on the big picture, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. I think a lot of the big plants we shut down, saw shut down this week will take two to three weeks to really that impact to hit our grocery stores. So I think at that point we are going to see changes. Um, I, so in that light, I think it will get worse. I am hopeful that as uh, it gets warmer across the country and we are moving farther into spring and summer that there are more local produce options and people are able to, you know, take advantage of rest. These, a lot of the smaller producers um, on the vegetable side often partner with a restaurant. So now instead of partnering with a restaurant, what are some of the creative ways that farmers markets or food access programs um, or even cities are going to come up with to get that produce to people? I think that food security is a, is a discussion. I think that the USDA in the last couple of weeks set up a fresh produce, meat, and dairy program um, where producers can sell it, can donate it directly to nonprofits. Um, so I, I think on one hand, on the commercial side, we're going to see more breaking the, – the effects of breaking down are going to hit the grocery stores, which is a step removed from where people are right now. But I think that as more time elapses, that, that innovation is going to allow people the time. Innovation is going to start to get kick in. And now that we're on week six and as we get closer to week 10, solutions will start to surface. So hopefully the solutions are bigger than um, the setbacks. But, I mean, if you are living in the mindset that you want the, pro the exact product you want any time of year for as cheap as Americans pay for food, that <coughs> complex might break down. I feel and, like, um, and this not this might not be a, a, a good idea, but I feel like if um, they were able to have like they have produce farmers markets, why can't they have uh, meat, dairy, eggs uh, farmers markets as well, just to keep you know the small farmers and stuff in business, so they don't end up having to close the doors. Yeah, um, so a lot. Some farmers markets do have meat stands. I can't believe this is coming up, but when I was about ten, my dad is actually a butcher, and his father was. And when I was ten, my brother and I decided to have a green market stand where we sold my dad's meat on the weekend. So that is definitely something that happens. Um, and my parents were actually going to try to call in and figure out how to listen to this live. So I hope they are laughing in their house too. Um, <laughs> but I do say, I mean, so I have talked to the, uh, farmer's market, the, the executive director of the Boulder farmer's market, and they are actually setting up where you can order online or by text. Um, different products that include meat and eggs and dairy. And then on Saturday, your box is ready and you drive through and pick it up. Um, There's, so it's um, interesting. Real quick, yeah. uh, real quick, Michelle, there was a gentleman on before us that we did the podcast before. There's a, there's a website, usabeef.org. So mm -hmm. usabeef.org, and you can actually go there and order beef. I think it just it might it might be a, a spinoff or something similar to what I think what you're saying is more of a farmers market, but this is an actual national um, organization that you could you know, order beef. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I just it, it, you said that I went oh we were just talking about, um, but that also helps. That's that small mentality, but it's actually a big mentality if you break it down, where you can actually order 
if you're going to order, let's say uh, at the end of the podcast, we were talking about families uh, that will go in, three families go in and buy one cow, and then one of them will, will raise it and then butcher it at the end of the year. Um, now it's, it's three families come together and they go and buy a cow on this online and have it delivered. It sounds like an awesome idea. And I would like to get into the chest freezer business right now, if that's going to happen. I don't think (laughs) – I saw that uh, chest freezers, you could not find one. People. That makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. People are – they're starting to look at their – Uh-huh. Yeah, I've just got my little freezer here. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of room. But I I told you we needed to buy a bigger freezer. Yeah. And once again, the – Wife is always right, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially when it comes to having room for good food. You never know when you're going to need it. Yeah. Well, that just – and so now we're – I think people, it, when they go to the grocery store and they start to see shelves start to, you know, wow, there's really nothing. Well, man, my choices are way off here. And there's going to be, I think, our society is going to really step back and look at their food supply and go, what can I do to, you know, mitigate some of these? these. Um, one of the one of the things I've heard is uh, the amount of people that shopped almost daily. They went to the grocery store. It was part of their daily routine. I, I don't understand that. I've never been that way. I can maybe once a week, but even then, that's a lot uh, to me. But some people were going you know, almost daily to buy what they were going to cook or fix that that night. Well, that's all changed. This is that that chain has been broken as well. So people are going to look at their food chain a little differently now. I'm hoping. Yes, and to go back to one of the other factors that I think will change how much or how good the next couple of weeks looks is. When you walk into the store and that product you wanted isn't there, do you freak out and buy everything else? And if you end up in the hoarding, right, then we're going to end up with the same problem, and and that will escalate it. And so, you know, I do think that a lot of people have tried to say there is enough food in this country, even if it's not – even if your grocery store doesn't look the way you used to, like we are not in a position where people – where there isn't enough food to feed people – um, and that is very, I mean, that is still true, right? That's what we're seeing. It's just mismatched and logistics of getting it to um, the end user is challenging and it's going to take some time uh, to work out. I, I really, you're, you, once again, you've, you've brought up a great point. It's a matter of uh, feeding your hunger and hopefully we don't get here, but I think, you're seeing it the kind of the same way I am is there's a, there's a ripple effect that is now rippling through the whole food chain and we're going to have shortages. I just, I, I hope not. Yeah. Uh, what's going to happen. Here's a good question. What's going to happen when these states start to open restaurants back up and people start venturing out and restaurants start ordering, you know, these massive amounts of food again, What's going to happen, you know, that's what I'm talking about, this hole in the chain of all this food that's been dumped. It's, it, does it well, get the it start right back? Quickly, if it happens quickly, then the, the things that were in the ground, the facilities you have built will, will start running again. And that's almost, it becomes a time issue, right? We have different, it's come to light now that we have different processing plants for restaurants or food service in your house. And so, you know, chickens that are going for your house go to one, one building and chickens that are going to food service go to a different. And so, you know, a chicken company doesn't want to update or change or take offline their food service operations if food service is going to be running again in six weeks. Um, and so right now they're trying to run extra shifts on the household side, but if this is going to be a long time, maybe they do make the investments in changing over more operations so they're ready for your house. If it's going to be a short time, you don't want to make those investments. And it's almost like this dance now of when or <laughs> what does the new normal look like and how much should I invest in it? Can I 
retrofit what I'm doing? Can I augment what I'm doing? Or do I really need to, instead of planting onions, which apparently people eat a lot more of in restaurants, do I need to be planting something else? Instead of planting, you know, conventional spinach, which people eat in restaurants, should I be planting organic spinach, which people buy in your house? Like a spinach farmer might not care which one they plant. They just need the market for it. And so you don't want to start planting a ton of organic spinach, have it go back to restaurants and not get the premium for it. So it's almost this push and pull and wait and see of what's going to happen next and how do I position my business for that, that new market. You you brought up organic for the first time, and that uh, I am I'm not a proponent of it. I think being on the farmer side of it, uh, it's uh, a little scammy. <laughs> it's a little scammy. It's it's hard to grow. It doesn't you know you don't make your yields, but as long as the money is there. Um, but uh, do you see that market? You know. It, what if a lot of this organic stuff has gone to waste and there's this massive gap? Do you see organic people buying, you know, instead of buying organic potatoes, they're going to buy regular potatoes. I don't know what the, I don't know what the culture is. I mean, you, you might know better than so I. I. So I, I, I hate to say that this is another place where it's going to, I think it's going to be, there's, a big question mark in my mind. And so the factors that I go through when I'm thinking about it, when there's a food safety outbreak, when there's a medical or healthcare concern, people get more concerned about their food and they want labels, whether it's organic, non-GMO, local, whatever it is, they feel better when their food, when they think their food is safer. And so they're willing to invest the extra money to purchase those, especially when they're scared and people have been scared. So you would expect those categories to do well. Now, if you look at the data over the last two decades, since the national organic program, you know, went fully into effect, the industry has grown double digit for most of that time. Um, Understanding how percentages work that, you know, it's still a small percentage of overall agriculture, but it has grown significantly each year. The time that it stabilized and you did not see growth was during the recession. And so when people have no money or when people are worried about losing their jobs, are they going to be purchasing higher-priced items um, or are they going to switch and purchase what they can afford? And so I think the fear factor in a lot of ways would push people towards specialty products I think that money constraints, especially, the, you know, when you're looking at 12% unemployment in three weeks or five weeks, might make people scared, and so they'd be less likely to purchase, and then it really goes to what's available. Michelle, what if it's 25%? What if it's 25%? That's I mean, scary. I, and you there know that. are a lot of people that feel like <laughs> it is worth any amount of money and a lot of people that just want to feed their families. Yep. And then, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, I could, I could totally see in a couple of weeks, somebody hit me up and going, Hey, you were talking on your podcast about somebody dumping potatoes. Where was that? Because, you know, uh, like I, I don't think, that, yeah, exactly. I don't think, I don't think, uh, think uh farmers aren't in the business of dumping produce or, or anything like uh, dumping anything and not having a, a an option to have somebody uh, you know especially if times are going to be tough they don't want stuff to go to waste there's not nobody wants that but you well, know then not, the regulation I mean, they raise but, these animals they you know spe- i mean i one of the things that i hope happens is all the people that want to have gardens and understand <laughs> how difficult it is to grow food or to raise livestock. I mean, less than 2% of the U.S. population is involved in food or agriculture. It is not an easy job. And I think that after you have spent all this time and money planting and caring for and harvesting potatoes, it is personal to throw it away. I mean, the stories and listening to people that had to dump their milk after having dairy cows or those market weight hogs that we don't have something to do with. I mean, it is a, it is an emotional 
thing. Our mm-hmm. food is emotional as we eat it. It is also emotional to the people that raise it. That's a good, that's a really interesting point because uh, I was talking to my buddy last night about how food and dinner, I always liked uh, sitting down with my kids and having dinner. That was when uh, more or less jury trials handed, you know, something happened and we needed to talk about it as a family. That was when the jury and judge and everything kind of, you know, uh, it was, uh, but if you don't have that, um, that's that connection to your food. You know, you're, you're making food as a, as a family. And, Mm -hmm. and so it's, you, you said it's an emotional tie. Well, then now you take it. And I know the other side of that is when you raise an animal from a baby and you take it all the way through to slaughter, and then you end up eating that, you know, there's an emotional attachment to that whole thing. So some, you know, less than 2%, that's really an interesting, I, I get to put, I get to put myself in that that category 2% know what it feels like to have a garden and, and actually can, and, you know, Beth's done some canning. Um, I it's love something canning. That, yeah. I like making peaches. jam. It's not going to help me during zombie apocalypse, but I, it's a fun activity. <laughs> well, yeah, well, Beth's peaches are really, really good. That she gives them and out of Christmas beets. gifts and your Oh, and your beets. Yes. Your beets, your pickled beets. Yeah. I might have you to get that, that recipe was... from you after the show. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's I, I I encourage people, you know, to talk. I made fun of the urban farmers. I don't think I was making fun of them. I I might have been. I, I tend to overstep sometimes. You but were making fun of them. Okay, <laughs> I was. But it's it's okay to. You know, if and if that person had come to me and said, you know, we're really interested in, in working with you on, on helping expand urban gardens, I'd have been more than willing to, uh, you know, stop what I was doing. And, and what what kind of what kind of help do you need? Do you need soil help? Do you need, you know, seed varieties? Do you need you know, what's what is it that you're trying to do? But instead, he attacked big ag. You know, attacking big ag is not the answer. That's you cannot replace uh, the amount of food that big ag, and and that's big farms. I, you know, I don't know what a what big ag you can label that. That's kind of a big, broad stroke. But uh, these large farms feed an enormous amount of people. Um, you brought up eggs, Michelle. You brought up eggs, and somebody said something. I said, "Well, they're dumping eggs." And what does that have to do with me? There's eggs in the grocery store. Well, if they're dumping the commercial eggs that are gone are going to commercial products, don't you think that that's going to affect your? If you want to buy Snooky's cookies, and they use eggs and <laughs> Snooky's cookies, don't you think that that's going to affect that? Well, oh. Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many products do you buy off the shelf that have eggs in them? And if they've done. Right. And how much, you know, how much, how, what are the cost efficiencies that egg layer, you know, that layer farms are able to achieve because they are selling commercial eggs and they are selling to your household. So if you took out half of the demand, then you've, you know, made the industry a lot smaller and do you lose efficiencies there? And then how much do your eggs cost? And there might be eggs in the grocery store, but every grocery store I've been in has a sign apologizing for how expensive eggs are. So they might be there, but there's clearly a huge impact in the last couple of weeks. And I think it's going to, it's going to get a lot worse. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely the half empty person on this just because I see the dramatic effect um, of what our egg, you know, food chains collapsing is is done on the on the commercial side, on the commercial side. So, well, what other things have you have you seen in the last couple of weeks that we probably should talk about? Um, I mean, sort of on that egg in the commercial piece. One of the things I think I mentioned online, but I've talked about it a few times recently, is and I'm not the only one talking about it, is that <laughs> that there are, I mean, when you think of, you might be seeing ground beef in the store, but again, the ground beef goes to the store and the cuts you're used to eating go to the store. But how many of you, besides 
you know, me, and again, I mentioned my dad was a butcher, make a prime rib in your house. Like if those expensive cuts are not getting sold and you're only using half the cow, how does that change what products are available? So there's like all of these weird things that we didn't expect. I mean, I think people knew or people that studied the supply chain realized, but again, the system works so well. You sent your steaks to steak restaurants and you sent your ground beef to the grocery store and Memorial Memorial Day came and everybody had what they wanted. Um, And it's just these cracks, as you mentioned, and they quickly ricochet through. And then you add the level of human emotion on top and people get scared. Again, Americans have never had food shortages before. Um, And so that thought and that possibility, I think, is something that most people are not um, aware of. And one of the best quotes, I think, for the role of, because we think about food as agriculture and food, and it's, you know, this thing that we need, and we, I don't, it's not a, it's not as critical, um, but, you know, the Defense Department and the Secretary, and the Department of Agriculture work together because food security is a huge piece of stability in general, and I, so getting to the quote is, that we are only, I think it's like five meals away from chaos. And so if you think about it, how many meals would you have to skip before you would do anything to feed yourself or feed your child? And so that's when, you know, we don't want to see the fear. Like, look, if you can't have hamburger, have a hot dog or have a bowl of pasta today. But if you get to the, as that gets worse and people, do become afraid, I think that mm-hmm. because we mm-hmm. never experienced food discord, I mean, we get to go to the store, like you said, we get to go to the store and you can decide whether you want to buy conventional, non-GMO, organic, local, all of those things. Like, I, I have always wanted Americans to understand how lucky they are to have those choices, to know that their food is safe and to get to pick the choices of what they want. Um, I spent a lot of time traveling back and forth to China and I had people ask me to bring baby food because they weren't worried that it was safe to give their kids. Like we talk about food safety here when there is not a single person that has ever walked into the grocery store and been concerned that it would make them sick. And I feel like I've actually moved way onto my soapbox and the conversation back. (laughs) <laughs> Not at all. That's why I wanted you to. I wanted you to, you know, I have somebody that understands what we've been talking about on a deeper, more economic level. Is what I was looking for, Michelle. You hit this. You, you're, you were the missing piece because uh, I can sit here and talk about what I'm seeing on the agricultural side, but having somebody where with knowledge of the economics and what is going on. Totally. You thank you for, for thank you for coming on and talking about this. Uh, you were talking about you know the food safety and back in March the, at the very end of March or maybe it was the middle of March. It was the first week that everything got shut down. There was a uh, one of the Facebook uh, uh, buy and sell um, pages, you know, and I'm going through it and there was we hadn't even gone a week and there was a guy. I have three kids. I've been trying to, you know, three kids. I don't have any money for food. Can somebody help me? And I went, oh, my God. It hasn't even been a week. It hasn't even been a week, and I've got somebody asking for food. This is going to be ugly if we can't, you know. And and you know what? I still don't know if we're going to get out of this where people – what if this guy can't go back to work? What if his job is lost? and he can't go back to work and the money that he's getting is not enough to keep, you know, there's, there's the ripple. I keep talking about the ripple effect, but how many other people, that was one person in a very small town. uh, What these big metropolis areas, you know, urban areas, you know, what's going to happen when you can't, when you can't feed your child, things go sideways. Yeah. Very quickly. (laughs) Very, very, very quickly. Yes, I was going to say very, very quickly. When you can't feed your child and you're not accustomed to not feeding your child, things are going to go sideways. 
But you also and have, I, I mean, I also have to take a step back, right? Because I, you know, in, am, you know, the first to admit first world problems. Um, but I have a little one and she stood there screaming yesterday that I don't know what she wanted. It was something like a pizza <laughs> or something we didn't have. And, like, you know, I'm having conversations like I'm having with you right now all the time these days and she's like but we don't have pizza and I just like wanted to turn her and be like we have a whole refrigerator of food like it will be okay you don't even know why you're complaining and in the in my head I can hear my parents and my husband being like she's three chill out um so so like those are like I can't imagine having that conversation with my child that like I really didn't have something like fine you didn't have the one thing you wanted right now but like you can eat um and I hope that you know I I am I am like you where I am nervous about the implications for the food chain in the next couple weeks or months I think it could be scary um but I am an optimist in in humanity or in society, and I, I am hopeful that there will be innovations and that there will be, I mean, farmers markets like um, are do, that are located near cities or farm stands or farms that are located near populations are doing better because people don't want to go in the grocery store and they're happy to go to your farm and pick yes. up stuff. So I've, maybe I've heard that, that will numerous. help them. I've heard so, that numerous you know, maybe times. Maybe there will be creative ways to get people food and to, you know, visit farms, understand where it's from. Like, I think it's great that people want to plant more gardens. I, I don't know how many chickens we should raise because they're not very nice um, <laughs> and they're difficult. But, you know, I am hopeful that as the summer goes on, that there will be more solutions. Um, and we might end up with a different food system at the end. And for decades, you know, American agriculture has really pushed on the people want cheap and safe food, and we get all of the cheap and safe food we want. I think that in the last few years um, that, you know, millennials get a bad rap, uh, but millennials want more than just safe and cheap food they want these other they want to support their local farmers they want to have fresh things they want all of these other attributes and this might be part of that shift I mean obviously it's not the way any of us wanted to happen but if you start buying from your farm stand and you stop going to the grocery store like is that something you're gonna do is that going to be something part of your um you know, part of your family's weekend and how does that change? Are we not going to, you know, one of the reasons that we don't have more um, processing plants is there are, I mean, we have, one of the reasons we don't have more smaller animal agriculture is there aren't processing plants that can manage it. So like there are some mobile units, but are we going to invest more in regional agriculture infrastructure which has really been concentrated for the last decade to get us to safe and cheap and these are kind of, I think a lot of these are conversations that have already been started but the situation now might really push them forward and if people are able to take advantage of this unfortunate situation we could see regional food systems grow we could see you know more understanding of why you cannot have a papaya at any time of the year in the United States that is local. Which seems crazy, but a lot of people don't uh, know that. Well, that's just it. I mean, uh, while you were talking, I'm sitting here going, well, you know, what if I started? I get, what if I started a little farm? You know, what if I, you know, I'm along a freeway here. What if I did a little two acre, you know, farm, but that's a lot of work. And the, the produce and everything is going to be super expensive. Now, if there's a break, an actual break in the food chain, and you can't buy red onions, unless I'm using that as an example, and you can, I just don't know. I, I, it's there's so much uncertainty that it causes anxiety. I mean, I, I'm, I feel it every day. I, every day I look, okay, my food, what my food source, I have. You know, yes, I can survive this long with no interruption. It's yeah, rice is gonna suck after a month of eating just rice, but I think I can pull this off. 
So is everybody still with us? Yes. Oh, okay. It just there was a back back feed. I just want to make sure we're still there. Well, I I don't I think you were I think you were a little uh apprehensive about this Michelle but I think you uh you're 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 a great you're a great guest um I think <laughs> you, you you you're great I I want to have you back on again in a couple of weeks to see how this is all kind of uh it's the the food chain and and where we at two weeks later and talk about you know where we at two weeks think about that in two weeks we're going to know more of what is uh going to happen and then we're going to know something another two weeks after that uh, yeah, I think that like, time is going to be a big one, and it doesn't feel like two weeks is a long time, but, you know, as as I mentioned, I think that a lot of those meat plants shutting down this week, we're going to see in a couple of weeks. I think in a couple of weeks, we'll know what planting looks like in the United States, and sadly, the thing that has been brought to my attention twice this week that's not being talked about enough is on the global landscape. In two weeks, we're going to know a lot more about this terrible locust storm in the Horn of Africa and what that means. So, you know, we'll, I, I just feel like every day, especially in spring is a huge deal. Can you, yeah. You know, did you ever think that you would be, you know, I would consider you a sought after, uh, you know, I'm sure you're probably getting, and this is going to help, but people are going to want to hear your opinion on, on what are we at on this food chain issue? You brought up a great point with the locusts. Uh, I've heard little bits and pieces of it, but I think because of the COVID-19, it's not been, it's not as forefront in the news as it probably should be, but you know, there's going to be all that whole area is going to be needing to be fed. Okay. Well, how can we get, you know, once again, we, we're going to export something, which, who knows? It might it might fill up that gap. Um, right. I, did you read? Did you? Uh, there was uh, I read uh, dairies are dumping upwards of over four million gallons a day right now, and that might even be more. That's a lot of milk. So um, it's a lot of milk. <laughs> a lot of milk. So that would be uh, thirty-two million pounds of milk. 32.6 million pounds of milk dumped. No, it's, oh. it's, it, it's hard. I mean, I try not to find that number every day because I find it too depressing. So I did not know that number. Um, but yeah, this, no, I'll just it, add it one more negative time. thing to your, yeah. So yeah, you be, we, milk is sold by the pound. It's not sold by the gallon. It's sold by the pound. So uh, when you say 4 million pounds, Four million gallons. Uh, each gallon weighs eight point six pounds, and so uh, that's would be uh, thirty-two million point six million pounds of milk every day dumped. Which you know, and now it's not necessarily whole per se because milk is produced every day, but it's mm-hmm. uh, it's hard on the farmers. The farmers aren't being able to. They're dumping it, meaning they're not getting any money meaning they don't have any money to buy feed, meaning they're going to possibly have to take their cows to market in a depressed market where just last night there was a guy on Twitter. He said, I could have never in my life thought I would see this, but a bull, a bull cow actually paid more per the pound than a fat steer. I just never, you know, do you know, uh, let me ask you this. And I didn't know this. Do you know why? I don't. The, the reason is, is that the bull is a lean meat. It doesn't have a lot of fat. And so uh, the stores are, are the hamburger. Hamburger is a hot commodity right now. And so right. the bulls it, it being sold to be put into hamburger is what's driving all that. The fat steer, the steer with the marbled beef for the, your ribeye that you were talking about, um, are not nobody there's no need for it so i was like oh mind blown i'm like okay (laughs) (laughs) i just i just got that and your parents are probably going are you kidding me michelle you don't know why (laughs) i know my dad's gonna be like did i teach you anything like come on you didn't know why a bull a bull is more expensive nowadays and (laughs) i didn't mean to get you in trouble that's okay. I didn't mean to get, that's all okay. right. 
Well, you know, I let's uh, let's cut this loose. I think uh, you're, this has been one of the most important uh, episodes that we've ever done, and I'm really looking forward. I'm going to get it. It'll go out tomorrow. Um, it's, it'll be live. You can obviously go to the link. I'll send. Make sure you have the link to it, um, and it's also on LinkedIn as well. But uh, we'll definitely start promoting it um, either later. It might even I might even do it later tonight. I just didn't want to do. I just did a podcast right before this one. I didn't want to double up. Cause then it gets lost. So uh, I really appreciate your time, Michelle. It's been your, thank you for having me. You know, hopefully, hopefully in a couple of weeks, if I ask again, you'll have the time to uh, get back on and and have another, let's talk again. Yes. Uh, We, we are readjusting. We have now survived six weeks of all of us at home, but we have found out that there is no school for, another two months so we're, we're reevaluating how we all get through the day to make sure that nobody's brain turns to um craft mush and uh, everybody gets their work done awesome. awesome and there's not too much tv time we got to keep that balance alive too so yeah it's it's definitely there's a there's a definite balance of of you know family life and then being being uh all holed up but whereabouts are you at now are in the world i am in massachusetts about uh 45 minutes west of boston oh wow so you're on the definite on the west on the east coast then yeah different different environment there now you're you are you from colorado is that how i read that no i'm from florida oh from florida wow i spent yeah florida I'm a West Coast guy. I'm a West Coast. I it's the 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 environment is just a different the 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 uh weather's different and the people are different. You start going towards the west, East Coast and things are a little bit I don't know. It's, being a West Coast guy, you can definitely say you know, East Coast people if you're born and raised on the on the East Side, you have a different mentality about stuff. So All right. Yes, let's cut our sure. loose. Well, let's cut her loose. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll be in touch and maybe we'll get you back on. Well, definitely. All right. Thank you. Bye. 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 All right. That was really cool. That was great. That was scary. It was scary scary. for sure, but very informative. And, you know, it's just something that is in our reality now. Um, I'm thankful that all of our kids are grown and they have to yes. fend for fend for them. <laughs> they have to fend for themselves. But the, thing, but the thing is, is that they're old enough to where they have to now worry about their kids fending for themselves. True, true. What's in makes it. It makes it, their problem is now our problem. Exactly. Because everybody. Exactly. Should uh, should have rethought that having kid thing. <laughs> no, never. Best best thing I ever did. <laughs> uh, so oh, so uh, RJ posted something on Facebook about the the, the family or the the kids. Uh, there's a scale of pets, and then there was a uh, effort yeah. versus <laughs> effort versus um. What was the what was the other one? Effort. Oh, what it was. Uh, uh, it, it was effort was on the on the the. Yeah, effort was on the bottom scale, and then uh, there was satisfaction, satisfaction and effort, and it was about animals. And <laughs> there was a baby on the far, far right of the scale. <laughs> yep, it was. Yep. <laughs> and dragons, dragons was on the far right, but top. So dragons but was the, the very number top one. one. Yes. Yep, dragons, dragons. Uh, as far as the effort and satisfaction. Turtles were on there at the bottom. We should have all had turtles. Uh, all right, we are we're coming up on a minute and a half here. Uh, hopefully, people are still sticking around. If you want to be on the show, hit us up at radio at hemplogic.com. And I seriously, I don't know if anybody, if you're listening to this after one almost one hour, let me know that you actually listened to the whole podcast as I might have to either cut the podcast down. Um, if you're still here, let me know if you listen to the whole thing. So, all right, we are done for the day. Uh, you guys have a great rest of your day and we totally appreciate you listening. Have a great day guys.
Take care. See you later. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.